Father, thank you for your presence. Father, thank you that you've uh, chosen to come and spend time with us. That you've uh, selected us to make yourself known to, to call us your children. Lord, today I just ask that you'd make known to us uh, all or more of that which is available in you, in knowing you and experiencing you. We love you, Father. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, good morning. So there's been a lot going on here lately. The last few services have, uh, have been pretty exciting. Um, and I want to talk a little bit today about what it is we're after. Over the last few weeks, um, you've heard different people say and pray that um, we, we're looking for more of God. And... Uh, I had a fortuitous uh, bed-sharing experience with one of our fellow congregants uh, after our flight got delayed in Detroit or canceled in Detroit over the weekend. We had an extended conversation about uh, what it is we're chasing after. And um, Since I've been thinking about it for a few weeks, I felt it was good to share. So I want to talk today about knowing God and experiencing the full expression of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. This is an ongoing, lifelong pursuit that only ends when Jesus returns. All right, so I'm going to say that again. Knowing God and experiencing the full expression of the Holy Spirit is an ongoing, lifelong pursuit that only ends when Jesus returns. The premise is that we never fully arrive, that we never run out, we never exhaust God, knowing him and who he is, and the fullness of what the Holy Spirit can do in our daily lives. Why do I think this is a lifelong pursuit? Maybe this is kind of for most of us, you're probably like, that's pretty obvious, but I just want to take a minute and explain why I think this is a lifelong pursuit and why it's important that we never, ever, at any point in life, feel like we've made it, feel like there's not any more for me, or like this is as good as it's going to be, or this is the way it's always going to be. That's the most dangerous place you could ever be. That's the most terrifying thing for me to hear from someone is when they feel like, why should I be chasing more of God? So in the Old Testament, God sat with Moses as with a friend. So this is pre-Holy Spirit poured out. God sits with a man and speaks with him as with a friend. Anyone have this as a normal prayer life? It's good. Then there's no more for summer. Everyone else... 
in the room, there's more for you in prayer. In the Old Testament, again, God tells Abraham all that he intends to do before he does it. Anybody else never surprised by what God does on the earth? Then there's more for you in relationship with God. My normal prayer life doesn't yet look like Moses. I have moments, but that's not the norm. A lot of stuff happens to me that God hasn't discussed with me. He hasn't okayed with me. He hasn't cleared with me. And he does it anyway, so I think there's more. You know, another good measuring stick is to determine whether or not we're living with less than what's available. Is to examine the New Testament believers' lives and evaluate whether or not they experience things that we are not. Anybody walk down Washington Street and have everyone you walk past get healed? Then there's more. You ever send out a washcloth to a relative and have them get healed? A couple of you have. Most of us haven't. Then there's more. What if the norm for us was when we prayed for healing and it happened, and the exception was that it didn't? That's the normal standard in the New Testament. And there's nowhere in Scripture that states that what the New Testament believers had was greater than what we get. Which leads me to believe that there's more. Typically, as we examine these measuring sticks, we realize that there's more of God available to us. (laughs) And evidently, there's more in music stands. I got it. I got it. This is say my first rodeo. The zag comes through in the clutch. And there's more. Now, one thing I really want to emphasize is as this becomes our reality that a perpetual pursuit of the knowledge of God and a perpetual pursuit of more of the effect, the outward demonstration of the Spirit in our daily lives. As this realization comes to us, it's important to understand that this can be and should be a joyful pursuit. It's really, really critical that our pursuit of more of God is not in a perpetual state of begging. I've lived this way. It's not effective. So, God describes his relationship with us, right, as a husband and a wife. Yeah? Okay, that's a fairly intimate relationship, I'd say. Okay, but... Just picture this, because this is often, when we're pursuing more of God, this is often our mentality, the way we view God and the way we view ourselves as we pursue Him. Oh, honey, honey, I just have to know you more. I need to, I need to, oh, please, oh, please, honey. And we live in a perpetual state of begging God for more. Fear. 
for a couple of years, I was a perpetual beggar when it came to God's presence and his will for my life, his plan and his power. I spent a lot of time pursuing God as a beggar, thinking that he would only dole out as much as I begged for. Now, there are pictures in Scripture that show us a heart of hunger like the woman underneath the table who continues to pursue Jesus in spite of being called a dog. But I don't believe that our perpetual pursuit of God should be that from a begging position. God is a good father, we know this, and he's a good husband to his bride. God's a husband that enjoys his wife's interest in him, and he enjoys sharing himself with her. She needn't beg, but can lovingly ask him to make himself available to share more of his heart with her. It's in this way that we can live joyfully in perpetual pursuit of more fully knowing and experiencing God. God wants us to want him and to experience all that's available in relationship with him through the victory of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection and in the Holy Spirit. He enjoys our interest in him. So throughout the Old Testament, we see pictures of what happens to the people of God when they lose interest in him. They get off track and they begin to sin, but usually it starts with a loss of interest in chasing God and knowing God. There's a really cool picture in Isaiah 29, verse 13. God says, This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. This is really interesting to me because he says, They honor me, they draw near to me with their lips, and what they do, but their hearts are far from me. This is a people that would show up to church all the time. They would do the sacrifices. All the right things this group of people's doing. They've got it all right, but they've settled in their hearts that this is going to be the way it is for all time. We're going through the motions. And it's a people that lost interest at a heart level in their God. This is a scary thing in my mind. Because it's so easy to fall into this. It's so easy to get into a routine where, well, my life's pretty good. I believe in Jesus, so I'm saved. I go to church. I live morally. I've got, you know, my job's fine. I've got a family. I'm doing all the right stuff. And yet my heart doesn't long for Jesus anymore. I don't really have a desire in knowing him more than I know him today. Like, I got the belief thing down. But I mean, what is there left to know beyond like, okay, believe in Jesus, you get salvation, we go to heaven at the end of the story. I mean, sure, I'd like to see some people get saved, but I mean, people getting saved doesn't really happen just through like me sitting with God. It doesn't take long for us to settle into this where what we have of God is enough in our minds. Why do I need God? Is the question that we'd never say but that we're living out each day. And there's a cool follow-up to this Isaiah 29, 13. It's in verse 14. And for me, it, it was almost... I'll just read it. 
Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of their wise men will perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Just, just think about this for a second. God has a group of people who have decided that knowing more of him isn't something they're needing, isn't what they want to chase. They're good with life as they know it, with the routine. So God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do wonderful things to this people. Wonder upon wonder. Why? He's flirting. The creator of the universe wants to impress some people. Because he's not interested if they can live well. He's not interested if their lives are nice and structured. He is interested in their attention and their affection. God wants us to be interested in him. That is so powerful. The creator of the universe wants you to be interested in him. That alone is enough for us to live in a perpetual state of pursuit of God. Is that his desire is not for us to arrive and live perfectly. His desire is beyond wanting us to spend eternity with him. His desire is that you and I would be interested in him each day. God wants to impress us. When our hearts start to become complacent and we stagnate, he purposes it in his heart to impress us, to revive our interest in him. That is mind-blowing. Stop for a second, okay? Remember a couple weeks ago when Ryan was sharing these words with people and he's telling these amazing stories? And then Jen shared a story last week. The testimony is so powerful. Do you realize that God is doing these things not so that we primarily get another story or have another experience? He's doing it primarily to increase our interest in him. That's what signs and wonders and miracles and healings are about. They're about pointing our attention and our affection to the living God and saying, hey guys, I'm knowable to you. And I want you to take an interest in me. It's kind of silly to think how quickly we get distracted from pursuing God and knowing him more deeply, isn't it? I mean, if someone famous came through the room and said, hey, I'll give you two hours to spend with me. You can ask me anything you want. Most of us would sign up in an instant, right? It's intriguing. There's nothing wrong with wanting to know a person more deeply at all. 
That's what relationship is about. We'd travel miles and cross mountains to listen to a man speak about their story and their testimony, and yet we have access each day to listen to God speak about his testimony and his story, and this is the one that we most often neglect. God wants to impress us. He will impress you so that you become interested in him. This will change the way that you pray. God desires that we would find him interesting enough to turn from that which surrounds us and come to him. That's what the last part of verse 14 in Isaiah 29 is about. I want to show them wonder upon wonder so that the wisdom of their wise men will perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. He says, I want to do amazing things so that they find me more interesting than that which is around them every day. Isn't that a little bit sad? Is that a glimpse into God's heart, what he feels? I think it is. I want to impress them so maybe they'll close the laptop and just look to me and say, show me something that makes me wonder. In Jeremiah 33.3, he says, Ask me and I will tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. Anybody else want to be the guy that God just wants to share his heart with? Wow. I'm going to embarrass Pastor Tuttle here a little bit, but um, last week he was, he was talking about prophetic words. And he said something that at the time I was like, I think you might have missed the boat on that one, buddy. Um, of course, I'd never say that until I had a really good reason. Um, but he gets up here and he says, you know, a prophetic word isn't meant to change the course of your life like this. I'm going on, boom. He said, a prophetic word is meant to be received and evaluated before God, considered and decided upon. And I'm like, ah, I got to think about that. So I thought about it. And then the Lord told me why he was right. (laughs) It's not the first time that that's happened. Probably like the third. (laughs) The only reason a person can receive a prophetic word and be able to sit back and evaluate it objectively like that is if they're satisfied completely where they are just in relationship with God. The only way you don't need a prophetic word to change your course, your direction, or your circumstance is if you are completely satisfied with who God is and your relationship with Him where you are. It's why Paul said, I've known satisfaction in plenty and in lack. And we got a glimpse into his heart about being satisfied just in relationship with God. I think God is looking about for a person or a people 
with whom he can share the deep things of his heart. There are times throughout Scripture where he says, I looked here and there for an intercessor, and there was none. Can you ever imagine God feeling distant or alone with only the Godhead to keep him company? Because there was no one throughout the earth that found him interesting. It's an incredible thought. He's quick. (laughs) This is really good news, guys. This means that never for a day in our faith will it grow old if we continue to pursue God and look to him to show us more of who he is and what he has. So when you hear someone praying or saying, God, we want more of you, in fact, it's funny, the first phrase that these guys sang this morning was, she's leaving Trevor, what are the words? I was like, man, Lord, I'm glad they got it right. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. There must be more than this. And I was like, well, I guess we're on the same page. This is what they're talking about when they say there must be more than this. God, you are so large and wondrous and beautiful. There are pieces of your personality that no one's ever seen. No one's ever known. I want to be the first. There are two ways that we can experience more of what God has made available to us already. Internally, and that which evidences itself externally. So we know that Jesus has won a tremendous victory over sin and liberated us from his power. If you read the book of Romans, you find out the enormity of what was accomplished at the cross and his death, burial, and resurrection. Immense victory. Then God, on top of that, gives the Spirit without measure. Guys, listen for a second. This is a little bit of a sidetrack, but when Jesus was crucified, he's buried, he's resurrected. The disciples see him, meet him, touch him, listen to him. They have the gospel message. And God says it's not enough. That is not the complete picture of what we get with God. It's a part, and it's enormous. It's an enormous part, the gospel message. But then he says, you have to go and you need to wait because I'm going to come upon you with the Holy Spirit. And when you have the Holy Spirit and you have the gospel message, then you're ready. That's what I have for you. So he gives us the gospel and we get the message. And then he gives us the Holy Spirit. So internally, so this is, Pastor preached last night about um, 
like draws like. And so I, over the years, developed this habit of uh, sharing a concept and then making it practical. It's just really frustrating. So there's the internal application of uh, knowing God. Knowing God as a friend. Moses sat face to face with God, knew him as a friend. And then there's the experience of the fruit of knowing God internally, personally and intimately. The freedom from sin. The freedom from sin. How incredible would it be for for some of you to be tempted by something that's had victory over you time and time again, and you're tempted the next time, and you walk away. The power of God over sin is a fruit of the knowledge of him. Knowing your value, what if it didn't matter how well you did your job? What if it didn't matter how clean your house was, how well your kids behaved, Because you knew your value. You could live in joy. Courage. Courage is a fruit of knowing God's love. Perfect love casts out fear. You want to be courageous? You just need another press of his love. You just need another moment where God shows you his love for you and your value to him. And it creates courage. Joy. Joy. This was one that Josh and I were talking about while we snuggled. Um, Just kidding, we didn't snuggle, that's weird. You guys get so uptight. The ability of the Holy Spirit to control you and protect you. You know, I spent a few years um, in my late teens, right, I was was an expert. Um, I mastered in sinning. Um, I was just top-notch, and, um, but I really couldn't not sin. I couldn't not sin. I'd start down a path, and I had no ability to stop it. And anyone who does not have Jesus is in the same boat. Anybody who doesn't have the Holy Spirit is in that boat. They can't not sin. And what's been remarkable to me in receiving the Holy Spirit and getting to know God is how powerful he is in restraining us from sin. Incredible. How good he, at, how good he is at protecting us from stepping into situations that will lead to sin. The longer I live, the more grateful I become for how good he is in his power at restraining us. He's also incredible at compelling us to do that which needs to be done. Then there's the external application. Experiencing God's power in your day-to-day life, like the stories Ryan shared about a couple weeks ago and beyond. When I mention the New Testament normal of these guys prophesying, and it's normal, of healing happening in the streets, and it's normal. 
That's what I expect for our lives collectively. That's what we're pressing toward as a group collectively. God, we want this as our normal and then some. I don't want to go into the hospital and pray while people die. I want to go into the hospital and pray that they would live. And I think that's going to be our normal. And that's what we're pressing toward as the external demonstration of the Holy Spirit and its power. So guys, if we get to a point where the 150 people in this room, that's our normal, I don't think at that point that we're going to go, hey, we've arrived, we can stop asking for more. I think there are going to be more things that we look around and say, this is still achievable and doable and livable for us. So again, there's more. But interestingly enough, and I think you guys are aware of this, but I've known a number of people in my life that had tremendous financial wealth, enormous financial wealth, and lived in squalor and poverty. They didn't use it. I know a few, I could tell you their names and I won't, that had incredible amounts of money. And when you met them, you would never know it. They didn't use the wealth of resources that have been made available to them. We can do the same. There's a verse in 1 Corinthians 14 where Paul is describing orderliness in the church and he says the, the, the spirit is subject to the prophet. Well, if you extrapolate that out, you realize that the spirit being subject to the prophet means that we can restrict the spirit's activity. Paul's telling them how to do it so that they have orderly church. But we're capable of doing it so that God's spirit can't work in all the ways that he'd like to, both internally and externally. So to get really practical, I'm going to share with you four ways that we live with what, less than what God intended for us, and that's how we're going to finish up. Number one, we don't think more is available or needed. There's a lot of bad theology out there that tells us that nothing more is available than that which we have today. And there's some really bad evaluation of my own personal standing and the church's effectiveness that would tell us nothing more is needed today. There's a lot of bad theology that says there's nothing more available today. It's not true. That's a different message, but I'll just tell you that it's not true. In a bad evaluation of my own standing and my own effectiveness and the church's effectiveness could lead me to conclude that there's nothing more really needed today. I don't think most of us are in this boat. I think we all pretty well understand that I need more of God. The world definitely needs more of God. Number two, fear of what people think can cause us to live with less than what God intended for us. So I'm going to give you two quick stories on this one. In 2004, I went to a conference at um, Willow Creek Church. 
And this guy, Robin Mark, was there, and he was singing songs about revival. He's an Irish guy. And we were there, and, and one of the girls that was there with us was my, my good friend's wife. And me and this girl were like oil and water. Um, I think, you know, what happened was early on, I beat her at Settlers of Catan, and she, she hated me for it. Um, we had such a spiteful relationship. It's just a funny story. Um, this doesn't have a point, but we didn't get along at all, and um, so she kept wanting to play tennis against me because she was convinced she could beat me, and finally we played, and I was so angry with her that I beat her 6-0, and she didn't score a point. And I felt really good about that. So I tell you that story to my own shame. Um, so anyway, we're at, this, we're at their house. And we're going to this conference at Willow Creek. And there's this guy who's singing, and he sings about revival. And she tells me before we go in there, when he's singing, you're going to be some goofy radical who starts putting your hands up. One of these crazy, charismatic Christians. Well, at this time, I was totally unemotional. Um, I'd cried once in the past, like, 12 years um, at a funeral. That June, so this is about two months later, and I'm like, I don't cry. When I worship, this is the kind of person I am. I just, I worship internally. I don't need to worship externally for people to see. So I'd pretty well convinced myself, which we'll get to in number three, but anyway... She's like, you're going to be one of those radicals of putting your hands up in the air. And I'm like, no way. So we get in there, and Eric, my friend, is like, hey, there's seats way down at the front. Let's run up there. And so, okay, so we go down to the front row, and we're like two rows back from the front. Were you there? Okay, my sister was there. She can attest to this story later. She knows the tennis story's true. And so worship starts, and right away, God's like, put your hands up. And I'm like, mother. And... So he's like, put your hands up. And I'm like, and I literally look down the row, and this girl is down at the other end, like there's six people in between us. And just so coincidentally, the Lord must have told her what was going on. She looks down at me, and I'm like, no. And he wouldn't let it go as he does. And so finally, I put my hands up, and I just, boom. I just begin weeping. The presence of God. It wasn't like weeping like, oh, I put my hands up, now I feel like I'm a man. It was like, I put my hands up, and God was like, now I want to come closer. Because a lot of times as we're drawn near to God, he takes us through the things of ourselves that get in the way. And I was so worried about what anyone else around me would think, and my arch nemesis, um, would think that I was restricting how God could let me get to know him more deeply. Conversely, a couple, it was probably five years ago, my dad was here at a service, and he'd go up to the front, and he'd be up there weeping, you know. And, after, and people would go pray for him, and after the service... I asked him, I said, you know, what's going on here? What are you struggling with? And he's like, it's funny you say that. He said a few people came up and prayed over me about all the things that I must be struggling with. And he's like, I'm not struggling with anything. He said, I just wanted to be close. God was making known who he is, and I just wanted to be there for that. 
It changed the way that I view going to the altar. My whole life, I'd gone to the altar because I had a need. My dad's like, you don't go to the altar because you have a need. You go to the altar because the living God is making himself known. Fear of what people think keeps us from everything God would have us know of himself. Control. This is kind of a tough one, huh? Wish I wouldn't have brought that one up. So what's going to be, what's going to happen if I let God really, am I going to be like that guy? I wasn't pointing at pastor. Everyone looked over at him like, At this same conference, a lady goes into prophetic mode. There's a few thousand people here. She comes wailing from the back of the church with this prophetic message. And I'm thinking, great, if God gives me the gift of prophecy, I'm going to be like that. And I didn't like that idea. What, am I going to fall down and start twitching all over the place? Great, God will make me like the weeping prophet. I look like that guy in the front of the church. I'm not like that. That's just not who I am. This is how I am. I'm like this. When we try to define who we are in the spirit, we're controlling what God can do and who he created in us. The only way we find out who we are in the spirit is by getting to know who he is and hearing from him what he created in us. We're living with so many false definitions of who we are that we don't even know it. Things that you would argue with me that this is exactly who you are and your identity and you know it and it's exactly what you're not. I have seen personalities change so drastically as they've grown in the spirit and the knowledge of God that you wouldn't even recognize people. It's beautiful. Control keeps us from experiencing everything that God wants to have with us. And the fourth thing I want to talk about is is a really simple one, but we try to earn it. A lot of times we don't know that we're doing this. Our asking God for more is in a manner that's begging, it's pleading. We don't really think that he wants to give it to us. We don't really think that he wants to share himself with us. And so we plead with him. I've got to have more. I can't live without more. And he's going, stop being so dramatic. I want to give you more. Just come here. I lived this way, begging from God and trying to prove myself worthy of more of God for a number of years. I was so busy living holy, doing all the right things, that I didn't actually live holy and just come into God with a desire to know him. Ryan Stansky has this picture of me where there was um, eight of us went to the One Thing Conference in 2005. We drove through cornfields, literally, when we got lost in Wisconsin to get there. 14 hours on a 15-passenger van that fits six. And... uh, 
So we get there, and there's a photo of us at the end of the conference. So we've just been in four days, 12 hours of worship and prayer, and there's a photo of us, and everybody in the picture is smiling except me, and I'm just like... (laughs) And Ryan kindly provides the subtitle of what I was thinking. We could be praying right now. Because <laughs> I, was, I was so fixated trying to live holy that I didn't realize living holy was just being near and living with God. It's the Mary-Martha contrast that we see in Scripture, right? We know the story. Jesus shows up to their house. Mary, she just wants to sit with Jesus. And listen, and Martha's showing Jesus how worthy she is of his presence. She wants to serve and take care of him, and she's doing all the right things. And Jesus looks at her and he goes, it's okay, but Mary's chosen what's better. What's better? Jesus, there's so many things that I could do for you, but I really would rather be with you. When we live with him in this way, When we do for him, he's with us, and it's an abiding. It doesn't need to be one or the other. We don't need to earn more of God, and we don't need to beg for more of God. He is a husband who loves to share of himself, and he loves when his people are interested in him. And he will give us, as a good father does, more as we seek it. Each of these things is the potential to hinder our ability to know God better and experience more of his power in our lives. It's important that we press beyond these hindrances into the relationship with God we are meant to enjoy. God will work us through ourselves as we continue to come before him to know him. He will take you through your own offenses. He will offend you with people around you so that he can rid you of yourself, of the areas of sin that are so deeply entrenched in you that you think they're your own personality. He'll free you of those things that you could experience more of who he is. I didn't know that I was being a control freak when I was telling God how I'd worship. I didn't know when I was an emotionless, feelingless, Stone, that there was more for me, and being able to feel and know the emotions that God built in us. And yet, he's committed, as we come before him, to work us through ourselves, that we can know who he is, and discover who he made in us. The last thing I'm going to say is this. When God is making himself available, move toward him. Tell him you want to know him. Ask him, and he'll show you great and unsearchable things that you do not know. Guys, there are those times where God's making himself known. You don't have to have a reason to lean in and say, God, I I just want to know you more. You don't have to have something wrong. But if God's making himself available... For you to come and meet him in a way that you've not known before. Ask and I will show you great and unsearchable things you do not know. Ask me 
I will never bore you. If he's making himself available, the worst thing you can do is say, you know what, honey, I just can't handle any more about you today. What kind of wife would we be if that were the approach we took? He'll reveal himself to us in ways that so change the way we think about God and who he is, and so change the way we view ourselves and who he made in us. Ask of him and he'll show you great and unsearchable things that you did not know. So now the worship team come back up. I'm going to pray. The good news, guys, gospel good news, is more than just you get forgiven of all the bad stuff you did. The good news is you have the opportunity in the Holy Spirit to get to know intimately and deeply the feelings, the thoughts, the desires, and the plans of the living creator God, infinite from everlasting to everlasting. That's the good news. That's what's available to us. So, Father, I just ask... For each of us, if there are things hindering us, selfish things, offenses that are hindering us from knowing you, Father, put a hunger in us that's greater than any offense, any selfishness. Put a desire in us to know you and who you are that's so great we'd run through anything just to meet with you. Father, thank you that you do make yourself known to those who seek you. You are the rewarder of those who seek you. So, Father, give us a gift of desire for Jesus, desire for you, that we might know who you are and experience the fullness of the expression of your spirit in the earth. We love you, Lord. Amen.